The poem says, Human voices wake us, and we drown. But I've made this podcast with the belief that human voices are what we need. And so, whether from a year or 3,000 years ago, whether poetry or prose, whether fiction or diary or biography, here are the best things we have ever thought, written, or said. This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. I've written a few times about one of my earliest memories, and that is of seeing myself as a small child running out of my bedroom uh, into the hallway, uh, just screaming with terror. And it so happens that what I was running from were the vampires that I was sure was outside my window, and the source of those vampires happened to be the incredibly terrifying, they still are if I see them today, you can go on YouTube to find this, the vampires from Toby Hooper's 1979 adaptation of Stephen King's Salem's Lot. Um, I would, I would uh, recommend anyone to go to YouTube and find footage from that movie of what these uh, deceased children look like uh, coming in in a bank of clouds and scratching on their friend's window and revealing themselves to be vampires and asking to be let in to their rooms. Um, even, even now, it is just uh, terrifying. And I realized, actually I've known this for quite some time, that my first literary hero, my first hero as a writer, when my family moved away from where I was born, and I suddenly found it very hard to meet new people, and I found it very easy to shut myself away with books and then with writing, my first hero was Stephen King. And he was the first writer whose, not only whose books I read, but whose afterwards and whose prefaces I also devoured, where he spoke directly to the person that he calls constant reader. Um, there was this image of this storyteller, this writer, who was also just a human being, and he was able to tell me as a 13, 14, and 15-year-old uh, what it was like to write these books and where he got his ideas from. And he was and in that case he was also the first writer whose biography I became aware of. I've talked a lot on this podcast about uh reading biographies of James Joyce or Vincent van Gogh or Beethoven, um but really the first one was the life of Stephen King growing up in Maine and his father leaving uh, his mother and his brother 
uh, when he was still a little boy, and discovering, I believe, that his father tried to submit stories to some of the pulp magazines in the 40s and the 50s, and what it was like for Stephen King to absorb uh, Sputnik and all the monster movies and end up, long story short, uh, becoming uh, Stephen King. And his stories have always meant a great deal to me. In high school and in late, in, in junior high, I also read a great deal of Dean Koontz, but I've seen very little reason to go back to rereading his books. Um, but I'm always, every few years, drawn to reading something by Stephen King. And uh, a few years ago, actually, uh, the experience of reading his Dark Tower series from beginning to end sort of gave me faith in fiction again. I spent so many years reading mythology and uh, religious scripture from around the world to write my poem to the House of the Sun. And for a long time, it was very hard for me to read fiction at all. But the experience of reading all seven books of the Dark Tower series was completely enthralling, and I saw what it was that drew me to Stephen King from the beginning. And I can't really uh, figure out why it was, but I just went back, and um, I didn't read because uh, these days, the, about the only way that I can absorb fiction or experience it is by listening to the audiobook. I went back and I listened to the recent audiobook recording of Stephen King's Pet Cemetery, which came out, I believe, I can check because it's right here. It came out in 1983. And the note in the back of the book uh, says that it was begun in 1979. And one of the things that struck me was that I recently listened to the audiobooks also of Cormac McCarthy's Blood Meridian and uh, Toni Morrison's Beloved. All three of these books are books that came out in the 1980s. And at least with Blood Meridian and Beloved, uh, both of those books would probably be, probably be near the top of anyone's uh, list of greatest American novels uh, since 1980. But I'll tell you something, and I say this with all honesty and sincerity. I filled this podcast with so much poetry and so much talk about so-called um, high art and how I'm skeptical of designations like that. Uh, Pet Cemetery struck me just as powerfully as Blood Meridian and Beloved. I have no idea what won the Pulitzer Prize or the National Book Award in 1983, but I'm pretty certain that Blood, uh, that Pet Cemetery will outlast all of them whatever books won those awards. Um, and I want to spend this hour talking about why I believe that is. Um, there's a great deal that uh, it's very easy for a snob to say that 
they don't like Stephen King. But I would uh, ask anyone, especially someone who is a parent, to either listen to the recording of Pet Cemetery or to read it. Just sit down and read it. And tell me that it isn't one of the great experiences of your reading life, your emotional life, really, your psychic life, again, especially if you are a parent. And I believe that that really is the key to it. I think that this is the really the greatest book I've ever read or listened to about the anxieties of family, the terror of being a parent. And um, you'll understand, if you've never read the book or seen the movie adaptations, you'll understand why in just a moment. But I think the key is with uh, children and being a parent. There's a, uh, a wonderful anecdote about when the much older poet Robert Lowell went to hang out with the much younger poet back then, Seamus Heaney, in the mid or late 70s. And Lowell by this time was living in England with his latest wife, but Heaney was, as listeners of this podcast will know, was living in a cottage outside of Dublin with his entire family. And Lowell's uh, remark to Seamus Heaney was, uh, you sure spend an awful lot of time with your kids. And that reminded me of an interview that Stephen King gave in 2006, where uh, the interviewer says that actually about him. He says, you have written a lot about children, and why is that? Why do you think that is? And Stephen King says this, I wrote a lot about children for a couple of reasons. I was fortunate to sell my writing fairly young, and I married young, and I had children young. Naomi was born in 1971, Joe was born 1972, Carrie came out, I believe, in 73 or 74, and Owen was born in 1977, a six-year spread between three kids. So I had a chance to observe them at a time when a lot of my contemporaries were out dancing to Casey and the Sunshine Band. I feel that I got the better part of that deal. Raising the kids was a lot more rewarding excuse me, than pop culture was in the 1970s. So I didn't know Casey and the Sunshine Band, but I did know my kids inside and out. I was in touch with the anger and exhaustion that you can feel. And those things went into the books because they were what I knew at the time. What has found its way into a lot of the recent books, and this is King when he's uh, I guess almost 60, he says, uh, what has found its way into a lot of the recent books is pain and people who have injuries, because that's what I know right now. Ten years from now, uh, maybe it will be something else if I am still around, and of course he still is. And I'm struck by that, and I'm struck especially uh, considering that it is early September in the year 2022. I'm struck also that uh, recently 
uh, a certain segment of the uh, political spectrum, you might say, um, has seen a reason to double down on the idea that not only that being a parent is something that every adult should take on, and that those who don't become parents are somehow lax or selfish or whatever it is, um, but they also seem to believe, or at least to pretend to believe, or just to say publicly, uh, this odd idea that being a parent is magical and easy, and that it is obviously fulfilling for anybody who really tries or cares to do it. And they seem to say that there is a, there's support everywhere for anyone who needs it. Uh, there's always family and friends around. Um, there's no reason for someone not to be a parent. There's no reason for someone to choose not to be a parent because that is what you are supposed to do. And it's not really uh, that hard anyway. And if it is, you should just suck it up. And I think that books like Pet Cemetery, written by someone who did indeed spend uh, his early writing life, his early professional writing life around his children, kind of points to the lie of that, that of course parenthood is just straddled with anxieties and fears, and we shouldn't deny that. And so before I go any further, I just want to briefly sum up the story of Pet Cemetery. It is about a family, uh, Lewis Creed, the father, Rachel Creed, the mother, and Ellie Creed, uh, I believe a six-year-old daughter, and Gage Creed, a two-year-old son. And they move one summer to the city of Ludlow, Maine, from Chicago, I believe it is, where Lewis Creed, the father, has just gotten a job at the local university uh, working in its hospital. And what they discover when they move in from an old-timer across the road named Judd Crandall and his wife, they learn that there is a pet cemetery uh, behind the Creed house, a little walk through the woods. And they hear from the old-timer named Judd that the road that, uh, that their house is on uh, uses up a lot of animals. The, the, the cats and the dogs get hit by cars and the huge uh, semi-trucks that go by all the time. And so the pet cemetery is there for the local kids to bury their pets. And what happens throughout the story is a series of deaths. Um, the first one is the death of the daughter's cat. Ellie's cat dies. And that happens when the only Lewis Creed is at home. The others are traveling. And Judd Crandall, who is there, uh, tells Lewis that if you don't want your daughter to have to deal with this right now, I can give you another option. And what he does is he leads him past the pet cemetery, uh, up a deadfall and through more woods that are wonderfully described, and he leads him to a different burial ground. And the whole time he's, he doesn't tell Lewis what he's doing, what the, what the point of all of this is, why he's burying the cat in this other place. But of course, uh, the next morning, uh, the, the cat is back. The cat is alive again. 
and Lewis does not have to talk about death with his daughter. But the cat has changed. The cat is grumpier, um, and so on and so forth. And actually, before the cat dies, the first death is actually the death of someone uh, named Victor Pascal, who, uh, who dies on Lewis Creed's first day as a doctor at the college. And Victor Pascal is someone who comes back throughout the book in, in uh, the dreams of various characters, warning them not to use that other burial ground. Now, in the movie versions, uh, Judd Crandall's wife is not included, I don't think. But in the book, she is, and she is the first, um, she is the next person to die. And that is where Lewis is able to talk about death with his daughter, Ellie. And then, what happens? Um, we've been hearing the whole time about how the road uses up animals. Um, there is the suggestion, although uh, Judd will not uh, tell the story, that um, while, you, while many people, local people, have buried their animals in that further cemetery, um, some people have buried human beings there and that the human beings have come back to life. But this doesn't uh, really take any form until the second half of the novel. And in the movie versions, the, the death of the two-year-old boy is shown. In the, in the most recent version, it's uh, the girl is the one who's killed. Um, and, but in both cases, in both, both movie adaptations, the death of the child is shown um, on camera, you might say. Uh, but one of the reasons that the book Pet Cemetery works so well, I think, is that Stephen King will not do that. He knows that that is a step too far to actually lay out the whole scene like that and tell you what happens. But Gage Creed does die. He, uh, you learn uh, from flashbacks and just stray details that he ran off into the road and was hit by a truck, one of those 18-wheelers that is always barreling by. And you know what is going to happen. I really think this is Stephen King's Oedipus Rex, where it's a, it's a story that you uh, have to read at least twice. You have to know what happens um, in order to really understand what he's doing um, and why the book is as long as it is, um, to see how all of it is leading almost inexorably to the death of this child and the decision by his father to send his wife and his daughter, who are still living, and who are mourning themselves uh, away from the home so that he can uh, dig up the body of his deceased son and put him in the pet in the in the further cemetery and raise him from the dead and that is what he does uh, that is what Lewis Creed decides to do in one of the most uh, excruciating 100 pages that I know of. Um, I'm not even aware uh, 
I haven't read all of Stephen King's books. I used to read each one as it came out, but of that's become harder and harder to do. But uh, I'm not aware of any other book of his that focuses so so intensely on one character doing one thing by himself um, over so many pages. The description of him sending his wife and daughter away, going to a hotel, going to the cemetery, figuring out, figuring out how to get into the cemetery, getting into it, digging up his son. Um, I mean, it's... Uh, uh, it's unthinkable, but but Stephen King is able to do this. Uh, getting him back to the car, hiding the tools, um, losing his keys uh, to the car, he believes. Uh, all of these things that would would be suspense in other novels, but in this is just excruciating because you know what is coming. Of course he's going to be able to uh, get his son back to life, and it will not work as well as he thought it did. Um, and so that is what he does. And he is able to bury his son in the further ground, and his son comes back as a monster, basically. And what he does is he uses the tools of the doctor's trade to murder Judd Crandall, to murder his own mother, who... Uh, has returned to find out what is going on and only then does uh, Lewis realize what is going on and he kills his son. His son is dead again. And on the last few pages of the book um, he takes his wife's body and he takes her up to the further burying ground. And in the last page of the book, she returns, and the last word in the book is her hugging him and saying, Darling. And now in the 1989 movie adaptation, what she does is she says, Darling, and then she stabs him in the back. Um, but it makes much more dramatic and human and uh, just sense as a story for it just to end with her saying, darling, this entire family has been ruined. There is no place for them to go. Um, they're torn apart. Their son has died twice. Their daughter is uh, no longer in the story. Um, she has been left with in-laws. And uh, the wife has been reanimated and the husband is has gone mad. Um, this seems to be the this seems to be the the great fear uh, writ large of anyone who thinks about what it means to be a parent the parent of a child and realizing that perhaps uh, or not perhaps but just in general uh, sometimes you barely know what you're doing or what is going on. And and then, uh, b before then, uh, during a long conversation with Judd Crandall after Gage dies the first time, that is when Judd Crandall tells the story of the one time that he was aware of a human being being put 
in that further cemetery and what happened to him. And that is another marvelous scene. But to, and by the way, uh, as if I need to give anyone permission, uh, most people don't want to hear stories like this. So if you haven't turned the podcast off by now and you don't want to hear anything else about this story, by all means, do so. But to get back to the interview that Stephen King gave about uh, how he spent the 70s with his children and not Casey and the Sunshine Band, the interviewer's next question is, bad things happen to children in your novel Pet Cemetery. Where did that come from? And Stephen King says this, uh, that book was pretty personal. Everything in it, up to the point where the little boy is killed in the road, all of that is true. We moved into that little house by the road. It was in Orrington, Maine, instead of Ludlow. But the big trucks did go by, and the old guy across the street did say, you just want to watch out. You want to watch your kids around the road. We did go out in the fields. We did fly kites. We did go up and look at the pet cemetery that was behind the house through the woods. I did find my daughter's cat, Smucky, dead in the road, run over. And we buried him in the pet cemetery. And I did hear my daughter, Naomi, out in the garage the night after we buried him. I heard all these popping noises, Stephen King says. She was jumping up and down on packing material, and she was crying and saying, Give me my cat back. Let God have his own cat. I just dumped that right into the book, he says. And my son Owen really did go charging for the road. He was this little guy, probably two years old, and I'm yelling, don't do that. And of course he runs faster and he laughs, because that's what they do at that age. I ran after him and gave him a flying tackle and pulled him down on the shoulder of the road, and a truck just thundered by him. So all of that went into the book. And then you say to yourself, you have to go a little bit further. If you're going to take on this grieving process, what happens when you lose a kid, you want to go all the way through it. And I did. I'm proud of that because I followed it all the way through. But it was so gruesome by the end of it and so awful. I mean, there's no hope for anybody at the end of that book. Usually I give my drafts to my wife Tabby to read, but I didn't give it to her, and when I finished, I put it in the desk and just left it there. I worked on a novel called Christine, which I liked a lot better, and which was published before Pet Cemetery. And in the recent introduction to Pet Cemetery that Stephen King wrote, he says... He says this about uh, writing the book. He says, there was no writing space in the Orrington house, but there was an empty room in Julio's store, and it was there that I wrote Pet Cemetery. On a day-to-day -day basis, I enjoyed the work, and I knew that I was telling a, quote, hot story, one that engaged my attention and that would engage the attention of readers. But when you're working day by day, you're not seeing the forest, you're only counting trees. And when I finished, I let the book rest six weeks, which is my way of working, and then read it over. 
I found the result so startling and so gruesome that I put the book in a drawer, thinking it would never be published, not in my lifetime anyway. And I want to talk as well as I go through here about why Stephen King may have seen that it was so gruesome, not just because it was so close to him, but still, why would he think it was so gruesome? In 2019, right, uh, right before the most recent movie adaptation was released, um, Stephen King says that he also listened to the same audiobook that I did, uh, read by Michael C. Hall of Dexter and Six Feet Under. He says, I listened to it last year when I was down here in Florida, walking on the beach with the dog. Michael C. Hall did the audiobook. I was curious about it, you know. I hadn't been near it in 20, 25 years. So I listened to it and I thought, my God, this is just awful. It's just as dark as can be. And the interviewer says, did you feel that way when you were writing it? And he says, I just had the greatest time writing the book until I was done with it. And I read it over and I said to myself, this is awful. This is really fucking terrible. Not that it was badly written, necessarily, but all that stuff about the death of kids was so close to me because my kids lived on that road. And then there's the question uh, from the other interview. What did you do after your daughter's cat died? I like his answer here. He says, I remember having a discussion with my wife, the novelist Tabitha King, about what we were going to tell our daughter Naomi. I mean, the discussion is basically in the book, and it really is a, a marvelous piece of writing. Um, I should say, or let me, let me read his answer first. Uh, he says, uh, do you tell your child that the cat has just gone away? He's wandering. Or do you actually make that the kid's first lesson in death? We chose to tell her the truth which I still think was probably the right thing to do. I hate movies and TV shows where the little kid says to the grown-up, is everything going to be all right? And the grown-up says, sure, everything's going to be fine. I don't like that. It's not the truth. You shouldn't lie to kids. And later on in the same interview, he says again, when I read it all over, I thought, there's such grief in this book, just awful. And I wanted to mention that the wife in the book, her name is Rachel, um, it's a marvelous uh, way to tell the story that Stephen King is doing. Um, she grew up with a sister who had, let me make sure I get the name right, um, spinal meningitis, her, her sister died of spinal meningitis and in both movie versions, I don't think they're able to do justice to this experience. But because, when she, because of the fact that when she was little, she had a sister who died of such a horrible disease, and she was so terrified of her, she now, in the present moment of being the mother of two children and the wife of a doctor, does not want to talk about death or deal with death in any way. So that leads Lewis Creed to be even more isolated in the fact that he 
used the further cemetery to raise the girl's cat, and later it makes it even more unlikely that he is going to confide in her that he might do this terrible thing with the body of their son. And if we go to, you can sort of uh, kill two birds with one stone here. If we want to talk about why Stephen King thought this was such uh, a gruesome book and why it maybe went too far, and but why, for me, I thought it worked so well, we have to look at a book that he was writing almost at the same time. Uh, he went to Arrington, I believe, uh, as the writer-in-residence, and he was working on a course uh, about the history of the literature of the fantastic, which became uh, pub which was published as his book, Dance Macabre. And my memory of Dance Macabre, reading that in high school, was the little note on the back of the book which says this, from Stephen King, I recognize terror as the finest emotion, and so I will try to terrorize the reader. But if I find that I cannot terrify, I will try to horrify. And if I find that I cannot horrify, I go for the gross out. I am not proud. And there's a bit of that in Stephen King, where he has to say things like that, or where you see uh, uh, interviews with him on Conan, Conan O'Brien or other shows, or just him being interviewed at all. Um, he's a very good showman. He is as good as Seamus Heaney was in presenting himself, um, just as well as, just as good as Heaney was at as presenting himself as the wise poet. Uh, Stephen King w still is, uh, does a great job presenting himself as um, just the guy who writes horror stories. But we've, we've, we can tell, especially over the past 20 years, that he wants to, and he ought to be, taken more seriously uh, than he is. But this is still the early 80s, so he's saying, I'll go for the gross out, and I'm the literary equivalent of a Big Mac and fries, and all that stuff. But I think there is a kernel of truth in that, and that is that Stephen King has written so much, and he is able to write so much, and his imagination and his abilities are so prodigious that on some level um, he wants to just tell a story. He really does just want to make people smile and turn the page or grip the book and turn the page. Um, he really does want to provide the enjoyment of being a storyteller and even of maybe scaring you. But Pet Cemetery does something completely different. And let's look at why I think that is. On the one hand, um, if you're writing a horror novel, a standard, I don't know what a standard horror novel is, just a ghost story that isn't meant to be taken much of any way, um, would you begin it with this sentence? And this is the first sentence of Pet Cemetery. Lewis Creed, who had lost his father at three and who had never known a grandfather, never expected to find a father as he entered his middle-aged, but that was exactly what happened. And of course, that man, that father figure that he finds, is the old man across the street named Judd Crandall. Right away, the 
the emphasis is on broken families and the desperation of this man who is supporting his family and has moved them across the country, the desperation and the sort of surprise that he has in coming across this older man who feels like a father to him. And it is and it is only the influence and the knowledge, the sort of uh, backcountry woodland knowledge of this older man that gets him to raise the cat from the dead and that finally leads him to raise his own son from the dead. So there's the weakness of the son who uh, never had a father. And you think of how much of that is Stephen King himself, whose father ran out of the family quite early as well. There's also the the sense of an imperfect marriage. I don't remember getting the sense in the movie versions that that Lewis and Rachel's marriage wasn't uh, anything other than basically stable, even if they had their own things they were dealing with. But in the book, that's made fairly clear uh, with the way they argue with... Um, Again, something on the very first page where Lewis imagines as they're driving to their new house what it would be like to drop them all off and just drive away and leave his family forever. Um, that is something also that I wouldn't expect uh, in a basic, simple horror story or ghost story that uh, just wants to make you jump. And there's the thing as well of uh, Stephen King's uh, sex scenes, which are never really anything you want to write home about. But in this book, they seem to serve a different purpose. I don't know if it's intentional or not, but it seemed that after the death of the young man at Lewis's hospital, uh, after the death of the cat, and after the death of Judd Crandall's wife, there was some scene of intercourse or whatever it is, of some kind of intimacy between Rachel and Lewis, and so that the the brief uh, graphic description of that was sort of a match to the much longer dwelling over what death is. Um, the other thing is that Judd Crandall's backstory and the history of that further burial ground is both fleshed out much more than it is in the movie versions, but also it is restrained. Um, for those who have not seen the film or read the book, it is said that the further burial ground was uh, at one point used by the uh, Native American tribe, uh, the Mi'kmaq, and, uh, and in the book it is suggested as well that this burying ground uh, had this strange power well before the Mi'kmaq got there. It's not simply uh, Judd Nelson and Poltergeist screaming, uh, they built their house on uh, an Indian burial ground and that's it. There's a much deeper uh, folkloric mythic, um, at least it felt very genuine to me, feeling to the explanation of what was going on here, and also the appearance of the the sort of demonic folkloric figure of the Wendigo, which I don't think it appears in either movie version at all, but sort of does appear in the book 
but never as anything, any kind of foe that they can fight. He's just there. There's no explanation for it. There's nothing anybody can do about it when he does. Um, and that is also something. It, uh, the the Micmac thing, the Native American thing, could very easily just have been a cliché. The uh, old-timer stories, the, the, the idea of an old-timer at all, the kind of person that Judd is, could very easily have been a cliché, but Stephen King makes sure that that doesn't happen. Um, and there's no, there's no subplots. Nothing is added on. No subplots. There's no huge cast of characters, as much as Stephen King in his imagination might want to just expand all of this out, show more flashbacks to the 40s, to the 1800s, 1700s, and on and before then. He doesn't do that. Um, there's no wider circle. Uh, there are some wider, uh, there are some uh, co-workers of uh, Lewis's, but uh, basically the focus is uh, one family, one road, and with Judd across the street. There's a great focus to it. Um, it could easily be a stage play, I imagine. I wonder if that has happened. Um, and the areas where Stephen King is usually faulted, that his stories are cluttered with brand names and the names of TV shows, and where things are described like landmarks. I remember in his book, The Wastelands, uh, where you're describing a world, uh, a sort of parallel universe. A guy from New York is basically wandering around, and everything looks like something from New York. Uh, this thing looks like Grand Central, this thing looks like Yankee Stadium, whatever it is. Um, he does that an awful lot. Um, but all of that, at least in Pet Cemetery, works to its strength. Uh, you hear the names of TV shows, you hear the names of brand names. Every now and then you might hear this uh, bit of land looks like this thing that people would know from the movie. All of that works to the strength of showing that the horror is extremely close, not just to these characters, but to all of us who know the TV shows, who know the brand names. Um, there's also no... Uh, this, is, this is a book about adults, not children. Um, I like to think that Stephen King is sort of like Steven Spielberg. They both do very well with children. But what Stephen King does uh, here is, I think, the equivalent of you have Spielberg dealing with kids in E.T., but later on in Schindler's List, you have the kids in Schindler's List hiding from the Nazis in toilets and basically covered in excrement. Um, and, and that's a hard thing to deal with. There's no little boy the way there is in The Shining who uh, you can put your sympathies on. There are no cute uh, kid point-of-view moments, like in The Shining, where the little boy is able to read people's minds, and she wonders, and Danny wonders, what a woman means when he reads her mind and she says that she would like to get inside of a man's pants. There, there, there's none of that. Um, it's about the parents and how they're dealing with the children. The children are wonderfully drawn but you never get inside their heads. In the movie versions, uh, the daughter, Ellie, is... 
I guess it is in the book as well, but it's not focused on nearly as much as the movie versions. She is shown as having uh, disturbing dreams about uh, the young man who was killed at the hospital and disturbing premonitions about her brother coming back to life. And you would think that maybe in another Stephen King book, or maybe in someone else's book altogether, um, that daughter would sort of be given her chance to save her family. She has this psychic power or this power of premonition, and maybe she can do something to save her family. Um, I think of the little girl in Dr. Sleep, who seems to be able to do just that. But Stephen King doesn't do that in Pet Cemetery. This is the one time, one of the times where he doesn't do it. Um, instead, his, uh, instead, Ellie's little brother is killed a second time. His mother is killed and raised from the dead. His father burns down uh, Judd Crandall's house and goes mad. And you never know what happens to Ellie. She is with her grandparents in Chicago. She is left dangling. Uh, and that is the horror of being a child. Um, and I think leaving Ellie there is uh, another great way that Stephen King shows the horror of being a parent, but also of being a powerless child. The other thing that makes it work so well, but makes it equally horrendous and full of grief, is that the death of the two-year-old boy happens off stage, which again does not happen in the movies. Um, you, uh, you have a scene where the little boy and his father fly a kite together, and uh, you turn the page and you're at his funeral. I think that was an immensely smart thing to do, and maybe just psychologically it was the only thing Stephen King could do. And that leads to the last thing, or the second to last thing, is that, and that is what I mentioned earlier, uh, the death of the little boy, his funeral, uh, the digging up of his body, the burying it again, the waiting for him to be resurrected, um, it is all drawn out over the course of a hundred and more pages, but I don't think it's drawn out for the sake of suspense. Will he be able to get the body? Will he be able to bury it again? Will the child rise from the dead? I don't think it's uh, a normal suspense or horror novel. The it, it seems to be drawn out to show the horror of what is actually happening, the horror of mourning, the horror of grief, the horror of actually losing your child, the horror of a man going insane and not stopping for a moment to wonder um, what happens when uh, he becomes old enough for preschool and people have heard that my son has died. I mean, that's a basic question. Um, I thought your son was dead, and yet here he is showing up for daycare or preschool. Uh, what is going on? Um, to have no awareness of just the logistics of having a son who has been raised from the dead. Um, all you know is your grief, and all you know is your desire to be able to hold that child again and to pretend that everything is all right. Uh, Stephen King does not let you 
does not let anyone off the hook in the story or as a reader. And finally, um, the problem that Stephen King sometimes has with the monster. Uh, he tells a wonderful story about uh, a story that he was never able to finish writing about a man who goes with his wife to the airport and she goes to the bathroom and he's waiting there for her to come out and uh, suddenly he realizes he's surrounded by many husbands whose wives are all in the bathroom and they don't come out and he describes this uh, amazingly I wish I could uh, find the audio of it I would just insert it here um, SWAT team comes, the, the police, uh, they're in an airport, so uh, you know, government, whoever else comes, the, uh, and he says that he was never able to finish the story because he never figured out what the hell was going on in the bathroom. And I've heard it said that that is perhaps one of uh, his weaknesses, is that when you do see the monster, um, it doesn't quite live up to your expectations. And in this sense, in Pet Cemetery, uh, there is no, there is no monster. Uh, there is the Wendigo, the sort of ancient folkloric uh, demon figure, but there's no confrontation with it. He just sort of, uh, at one point, Lewis sees it as it's passing by, as it's crushing the trees. Um, it's basically a story of a father and a family and the impulse to move for a better life, for a new job, uh, the impulse to keep his family safe and secure, the anxieties associated with all of that. That is the thing. The I don't want to say the American dream has become the monster, but just the anxieties of family. How do I educate these children? How do I keep their belly is filled? How do I not go crazy myself with my job so that I have time to focus on them? Um, that process itself uh, is the monster. And as he says, uh, there is no redemption in this book. There is um, no hope for these people. And that, I think, is perhaps the real reason why he thinks it's so awful. Because in the end, um, this is not the kind of horror story he wants to tell. He wants to tell the horror story that can uh, make you feel entertained and not the one that uh, rips your heart out, as this does. And the other curious thing is that uh, a character named Steve, a, a co-worker of Lewis Creed's, is in the book, and he is the one who sees Lewis Creed wandering off with his wife wrapped in a sheet to raise her from the dead. And I'm not aware in any of Stephen King's other books of another character whose name is Steve. And I wonder if that is significant somehow that he put himself in this book to, uh, to observe this final horror, this final tragedy, really, of this family. Um, it's just an interesting thing to think. And I thought I would have more time to read from the book, but instead I'll just read uh, one little line that seems indicative of the whole. This is when Lewis is talking to his father-in-law 
uh, again, the father, the father-in-law is the one whose daughter, um, his one daughter is Lewis's wife, Rachel. The other is the one who died of spinal meningitis. And he's telling him that he did the best that he could for his, for both of his daughters. And he's telling Lewis that he needs to do the same for his family. But Lewis's father-in-law says, maybe we're too old. He says, we did the best we could. Maybe we're too old. Maybe, Lewis, we always were. And that, that really kicked me in the gut when I read that or heard that. Maybe, Lewis, we always were too old. Maybe there was nothing we could do uh, with this thing called uh, family and keeping us sane and dealing with a child who was dying and dealing with another child who was not dying but who was in the house of someone who was dying. I'm reminded, and I'm running out of time here, but I am reminded that in one of my attempts to write about this many years ago, the the story I came back to was a story from Ovid, a story that uh, first came to me in T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland, and that is the story of uh, the couple named uh, Terius and Procne. Uh, Terius marries Procne, and they have a little boy named Itius, but Terius becomes uh, sort of besotted with Procne's sister, Philomela. And long story short, he is able to uh, he is able to imprison Philomela, and uh, basically keep her as his sex slave. Uh, and he cuts out her tongue so that she can't tell anybody about it. Uh, Philomela weaves the story onto a loom and has it sent to her sister. And the, both the two sisters are reunited. And Procne, the mother of Itius, what does she do? She realizes that the only way to get back at her husband for disgracing her and raping her sister is to take from Terius the thing that he loves the most, which is Terius' son, Idias. It's her own son, but she decides that he is more, you might say, Terius' son than he is uh, her own. And she, the, the two sisters kill the child and put him into a, uh, put him into a broth, and they make dinner out of him, and they serve Terius this dinner. And in one of the most remarkable lines from world literature, uh, Terius is having such a great time uh, at his dinner, it tastes so good, that he says, where is my son he should share in this dinner? And Procne rushes in uh, with her son's head and throws it at her husband and says, you have within you the one that you seek. He has been eating his own son. And uh, there's sort of a relay race out of the house at that point. And uh, Terius, Procne, and Philomela all turn into birds. And that is why they are in Ovid's Metamorphoses. But it strikes me that that also, from the ancient world, is another story of the horror of uh, the anxiety of uh, 
of being a parent, the, uh, the, the window dressing, you might say, the, the magician's act has you looking at the one hand of this besotted man imprisoning this woman uh, and ki sort of kidnapping her. Excuse me. But on the other hand, the real horror is what happens to the most innocent person here, and that is the, uh, the little boy. And maybe I do have time to read this. Let's see how long this is. This little section here. I think I should try to read it. Um, this is from uh, the middle of the book, right before the little boy dies. And this is the, the last day that Lewis Creed has with his son. Let me just pick it up right here. It says this, Lewis Creed came to believe that the last really happy day of his life was March 24th, 1984. The things that were to come, poised above them like a killing sash weight, were still over seven weeks in the future. But looking over those seven weeks, he found nothing which stood out with the same color. He supposed that even if none of those terrible things had happened, he would have remembered that day forever. Days which seemed genuinely good, good all the way through, are rare enough anyway, he thought. It might be that there was less than a month of really good ones in any natural man's life in the best of circumstances. It came to seem to Lewis that God, in his infinite wisdom, seemed much more generous when it came to doling out pain. That day was a Saturday, and he was home minding Gage in the afternoon, while Rachel and Ellie went after groceries. They had gone with Judd in his old and rattling 59 IH pickup, not because the station wagon wasn't running, but because the old man genuinely liked their company. Rachel asked Lewis if he would be okay with Gage, and he told her that of course he would. He was glad to see her get out. After a winter in Maine, most of it in Ludlow, he thought that she needed all the getting out she could lay her hands on. She had been an unremittingly good sport about it, but she did seem to him to be getting a little stir-crazy. Gage got up from his nap around two o'clock, scratchy and out of sorts. He had discovered the terrible twos and made them his own. Lewis tried several ineffectual gambits to abuse the kid, and Gage turned them all down. To make matters worse, the rotten kid had an enormous bowel movement, the artistic quality of which was not improved for Lewis when he saw a blue marble sitting in the middle of it. It was one of Ellie's marbles. The kid could have choked. He decided that marbles, that the marbles were going to go. Everything Gage got a hold of went right to his mouth. But that decision, while undoubtedly laudable, didn't do a thing about keeping the kid amused until his mother got back. Lewis listened to the early spring wind gust around the house, sending big blinkers of light and shadow across Mrs. Vinton's field next door. And he suddenly thought of the vulture 
that he had bought on a whim, the kite, a vulture, that he had bought at a whim at five or six weeks before, while on his way home from the university. He had thought, had he bought twine as well, he had, by God. Gage, he said. Gage had found a green Crayola under the couch and was currently scribbling in one of Ellie's favorite books. Something else to feed the fires of sibling rivalry, Lewis thought and grinned. If Ellie got really pissy about the scribbles, Gage had managed to put in where the wild things are before Lewis could get it away from him, Lewis would simply mention the unique treasure he had uncovered in Gage's pampers. What? Gage responded smartly. He was talking pretty well now. Lewis had decided the kid might actually be half bright. You want to go out? Want to go out, Gage agreed excitedly. Want to go out? Where are my neeks, Daddy? This sentence, if reproduced phonetically, would have looked something like this. Where are my neeks, Daddy? The translation was, Where are my sneakers, Father? Lewis was often struck by Gage's speech, not because it was cute, but because he thought that small children all sounded like immigrants learning a foreign language in some helter-skelter but fairly amiable way. He knew that babies make all the sounds the human voice box is capable of, the liquid trill that proved so difficult for first-year French students, the glottal grunts and clicks of the Australian bush people, the thickened, abrupt consonants of German. They lose the capability as they learn English, and Lewis wondered now, and not for the first time, if childhood was not more a period of forgetting than of learning. Gage's neeks were finally found. They were also under the couch. One of Lewis's other beliefs was that in families with small children, the area under living room couches begins, after a while, to develop a strong and mysterious electromagnetic force that eventually sucks in all sorts of litter, everything from bottles and diaper pins to green Crayolas and old issues of Sesame Street magazine, with food moldering between the pages. Gage's jacket, however, wasn't under the couch. It was halfway down the stairs. His Red Sox cap, without which Gage refused to leave the house, was the most difficult of all to find, because it was where it belonged, in the closet. That was, naturally, the last place they looked. Where are going, Daddy? Gage asked companionably, giving his father his hand. Going over in Mrs. Vinton's field, he said. Gonna go fly a kite, my man. Kite? Gage said doubtfully. You'll like it, Lewis said. Wait a minute, kiddo. They were in the garage now. Lewis found his key ring, unlocked the little storage closet, and turned on the light. He rummaged through the closet and found the vulture, still in its store bag, with the sales slip still stapled to it. He had bought it in the depths of mid-February, when a soul had cried out for some hope. That? Gage asked. This was Gage ease for, whatever the world might you have there, father. It's the kite, Lewis said and pulled it out of the bag. Gage watched, interested, as Lewis unfurled the vulture, which spread its wings over perhaps five feet of tough plastic. Its bulgy, bloodshot eyes stared out at them from its small head atop its scrawny, 
pinkly naked neck. Bert, Gage yelled. Bert, Daddy, got a Bert. Yeah, it's a bird, Lewis agreed, slipping in the sticks into the pockets at the back of the kite and rummaging again for the 500 feet of kite twine that he had bought the same day. He looked back over his shoulder and repeated to Gage, You're going to like it, big guy. And Gage liked it. They took the kite over into Mrs. Vinton's field, and Lewis got it up into the blowy, late-March sky first shot, although he had not flown a kite since he was, what, twelve? Nineteen years ago? God, that was horrible. Mrs. Vinton was a woman of almost Judd's age, but immeasurably more frail. She lived in a brick house at the head of her field, but now she came out only rarely. Behind the house, the field ended and the woods began, the woods that led first to the pet cemetery and then to the Micmac burying ground beyond it. Kite's flying, Daddy, Gage screamed. Yeah, look at it go, Lewis bellowed back, laughing and excited. He paid out kite twine so fast that the string grew hot and branded thin fire across his palm. Look at that vulture, Gage. She's going to beat shit. Beat shit, Gage cried and laughed, high and joyously. The sun sailed out from behind a fat gray spring cloud, and the temperature seemed to go up five degrees almost at once. They stood in the bright, unreliable warmth of March, straining to be April, in the high dead grass of Mrs. Vinton's field. Above them the vultures soared up toward the blue, higher, its plastic wings spread taut against that steady current of air, still higher, and as he had done as a child, Lewis felt himself going up to it, going into it, staring down as the world took on its actual shape, the one cartographers must see in their dreams. Mrs. Vinton's field, as white and still as cobwebs, following the retreat of the snow, not just a field now, but a large parallelogram bounded by rock walls on two of its sides, and then the road at the bottom, a straight black seam, and the river valley, the vulture saw it all with its soaring bloodshot eyes. It saw the river like a cool gray band of steel, chunks of ice still floating in it. On the other side it saw Hampton, Newburgh, Winterport, with a ship at dock. Perhaps it saw the St. Regis Mill at Buckport, below its streaming fume of cloud, or even Land's End itself, where the Atlantic pounded the naked rock. Look at her go, Gage, Lewis yelled, laughing. Gage was leaning so far back he was in danger of toppling over. A huge grin covered his face. He was waving to the kite. Lewis got some slack and told Gage to hold out one of his hands, and Gage did, not even looking around. He couldn't take his eyes from the kite, which swung and danced in the wind and raced its shadow back and forth across the field. Lewis wound the kite string twice around Gage's hand, and now he did look down, comically amazed at the strong tug and pull. What? he said. You're flying it, Lewis said. You got the hammer, my man, at your kite. Gage flying it, Gage said, as if asking not his father but himself for confirmation. He pulled the string experimentally, 
The kite nodded in the windy sky. Gage pulled the string harder. The kite swooped. Lewis and his son laughed together. Gage reached out his free hand, groping, and Lewis took it in his own. They stood together that way in the middle of Mrs. Vinton's field, looking up at the vulture. It was a moment with his son that Lewis never forgot. As he had gone up and into the kite as a child himself, he now found himself going into Gage, his son. He felt himself shrink until he was within Gage's tiny house, looking out of the windows that were his eyes, looking out at a world that was so huge and bright, a world where a Mrs. Vinton's field was nearly as big as the Bonneville salt flats, where the kite soared miles above him, the string drumming in his fist like a live thing as the wind blew around him, tumbling his hair. Kite flying, Gage cried out to his father, and Lewis put his arm around Gage's shoulders and kissed the boy's cheek in which the wind had bloomed a wild rose. I love you, Gage, he said. It was between the two of them, and that was all right. And Gage, who now had less than two months to live, laughed shrilly and joyously. Kite flying, kite flying, Daddy. So there we have it, and isn't that beautifully done, or if not beautifully, just effectively, emotionally, just well done. A long scene of a father and a son, uh, the father trying to figure out what to do with his young son for the day, and deciding to take him out to fly a kite. And that last sentence is the first we hear of the fact that the little boy Gage will, in fact, die. And I have to come back to the question of popular, so-called so popular versus so-called literary fiction here, especially at this point, and at least for a moment, because it was the influence of someone in my life when I entered high school who first pointed out this thing to me, that there is such a such an individual as a serious writer, a literary writer. And there are supposedly people like Stephen King or whoever it is that you can sort of go, eh, uh, they don't have anything to say. And uh, even more terrible than apparently having nothing to say, they, they don't write very well. I would put Pet Cemetery up there as an example of a book saying uh, an awful lot more than a whole shelfful of literary novels pretend to say. And as to the style of writing, or the writing itself, it seems to me, even with the books that I mentioned earlier, Toni Morrison's Beloved and Cormac McCarthy's Blood Meridian, these are two books that I love. I think I've mentioned that uh, Beloved is my favorite novel, and I think it is still. But I think when people talk about books like that, very often what they begin with, and this is even the case with me, it is, uh, look at how they tell the story. Look at how they use language. 
uh, Blood Meridian especially seems to be mostly a, a, a grand sort of performance. It is, um, I can't think of the term right now, but it is basically uh, a performance. It is something that needs to be read aloud. And I don't know of anyone who has pulled off quite a performance for so many pages the way Cormac McCarthy did it. But still, it is the language that catches you, not the story. I think in Beloved, one reason that I do love it is because it is both the language and the story that catches me. But in terms of what people call literary fiction and what people call popular fiction, I do think that you can, uh, if there is a great huge difference between those kinds of books, it really is a matter of saying, with the literary side of things, look at how they tell their story, look at how they use language. Whereas with someone like Stephen King, and I think he would admit to this very proudly, um, what you say is, look at the story that he tells, look at the story that he tells. And I think that books like that, I think that stories like that are the ones that will last. They're the ones that people will continue to go back to because the stories that people tell, uh, the stories that you know extremely well, the stories that matter to you are ones that you try to tell other people. I will come back to Cormac McCarthy, actually, and if I try to describe Blood Meridian to people, um, it's very hard for me to do so. I say, well, it's uh, about a young man who goes west in the late 1840s, and it is basically a bloodbath for 300 or so pages, uh, with the most beautiful language describing these bloodbaths uh, and talking about uh, humanity and violence and um, what it takes, you might say, to uh, found a country, or at least found the West. Um, but there's nothing in there, I don't think, that I would, if, uh, if someone came over and I would say, let me tell you a story from Blood Meridian, I wouldn't really know where to start. But uh, I sure as hell know, for certain, that I could easily say, let me tell you the story of a book called Pet Cemetery. And it uh, is the kind of story that can change your life. Um, I was very happy back in 2003 or 2004 when Stephen King received the, uh, uh, I believe, the Lifetime Achievement Medal from the uh, National Book at the National Book Awards. And everybody was decrying this, and it was, uh, I think Harold Bloom was up there saying that this is the uh, capstone of the dumbing down of whatever. Um, and I just don't believe it. I keep coming back to Stephen King over and over in my life. Um, I first read him as perhaps in the seventh or the eighth grade. And I grew up on Stephen King. I grew up on the movies of Stephen King's books. And I can remember... It, exactly where I was in my house in Geneva, Ohio, when I asked my parents, um, have either of you ever read any of Stephen King's books? And perhaps part of me was hoping that they had, 
but what a great thrill it was to hear them both say no, to suddenly have this huge universe that this, uh, that this man has put down uh, by the early 90s, even when I started high school. By then it was already huge. By now, uh, who knows? I, I have no idea how many novels he's written. And um, through it all, I've always come back to him, and I've always felt better doing so. And so I just felt like saying that and reading this little bit from Pet Cemetery just to show uh, how it is um, to get it done. And even if Stephen King himself would choose another book as an exemplar of his, I think the book he seems to choose is a novel called Lizzie's Story. Again, it's a story, I believe, about adults, and it's, about, it's a story about a marriage. But I think he hits something. He hits a, a, a great nerve as if uh, people, uh, as if parents were walking around as one huge cavity. And Pet Cemetery is a, is a needle uh, just being stabbed into that cavity. Um, I think he hits something very primal and very important uh, with what he has to say about being a parent. Uh, about being an adult, about being friends with other adults, the friendship between Lewis and Judd Crandall, and the idea that children eventually come to, that uh, their parents are not perfect. The old man across the street, who you've been told to respect because he's an old man, uh, he is also not perfect. He sometimes has uh, <laughs> very bad ideas indeed about how uh, one should handle things. And sometimes those great statements come in books like Pet Cemetery, and we should not ignore them. Um, we ignore them, I suppose, at our own risk. And uh, so I just wanted to get that out there at the very end of this long episode about Pet Cemetery, but just as well as an overdue appreciation on this podcast anyway, of all the things that I owe to Stephen King. Any comments or suggestions for readings I should make in future episodes can be emailed to humanvoiceswakeus, the number one, at gmail.com. Links to each work used in this episode can be found in the episode description. If you enjoy Human Voices Wake Us, you can subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. The music here is Duke Ellington's Arabesque Cookie.